The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today as we take a technical look at the markets with Katie Stockton, founder and managing partner of Fairlead Strategies. Barron's Deputy Editor Ben Levison joins us as well. Stocks are mixed today and oil and gold are soaring. Welcome, Katie and Ben. I'm so glad to have you both on Barron's Live. Thank you, Great Lauren. To be here. Katie, before we dig into the news of the day, I thought it might be helpful for you to give listeners just a brief overview of technical analysis, in particular, what it aims to achieve, why it matters, and some of the tools you're using to understand price moves. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, what, what we're trying to do really is manage risk primarily and also secondarily, I'd say market timing and identifying opportunities in the markets. And we do that through the analysis of price trends. We believe as technicians that price reflects the supply and demand and sort of market psychology behind, uh, you know, investors' decision making. And that's what we're trying to measure by identifying prevailing trends. And we do that through any number of ways. And every technical analyst who you speak to will have probably some variation of a methodology. Um, But our methodology tends to be pretty heavy towards technical indicators. So we're using mathematical tools to judge momentum, to judge overbought, oversold indications, and to try to identify not only prevailing trends and how much momentum they have, but whether those trends are perhaps coming to an end. We also spend a lot of time trying to identify potential areas of buying and selling pressure. We call that support and resistance. And those levels can help us manage risk through the identification of potential sort of risk reward takeaways from the charts. Ben and I have often found technical analysis helpful in conjunction with fundamental analysis. So it's good to mix things up and have a technician on the call now and then. Of course, yeah. So now let's put technical analysis into action. We'll start with the energy market. Oil has come roaring back into April after OPEC Plus announced surprise production cuts over the weekend. As of this morning, West Texas crude was up 6%. It was topping 80 a barrel. And the question is, as they say on Wall Street, will this rally have legs? What do you think, Katie? You know, it's already proving to have legs. Ahead of today's big gap up and 6% or so gain, we even had an 18% gain off of the March low. So it's been already a pretty impressive oversold bounce. And I see today's gap up as an extension of that and and something that certainly helps some of the technical indicators that we do track. So we have short-term indicators pointing higher right now, but also with this extension of the move, we have some upturns in our intermediate-term indicators. So those are derived from the weekly bar charts. And they suggest that there is sort of some shelf life to this relief rally. The relief rally is within the context of a downtrend that really began last June 
And we have to trust that that downtrend is going to keep hold. We actually saw recently a breakdown below $70 per barrel, and that was just a reminder of that prevailing downtrend. Uh, but within that context, we had on a monthly bar chart, so long-term view, some signs of downside exhaustion based on something called the DeMarc indicators for those technicians out there. And those support about four months of stabilization, sort of sideways to higher for crude oil. And we see this relief rally as the first step towards that. So one of our listeners, Denise, has asked the question, is this a meaningful turn in oil or just a contra rally? I think it's both. So I think it is something that folks can leverage from a trading perspective because it will be more intermediate term than it is short term. It's the short term moves that are really difficult to time and to capture. Uh, But this one does appear to have some shelf life. Perhaps it's three months or four months from here. And that to me makes it, while still technically perhaps a counter trend move, something that has enough shelf life to take advantage of from a trading perspective. The indicators point higher for now. We we don't have a way of knowing what they're going to look like in six weeks or eight weeks or or beyond, but we generally want to keep them on our side. And and right now they are on our side. And if we were to see crude oil get through the 200-day moving average, which is really more of a psychological hurdle than anything else, it's just shy of $85 per barrel. Uh, that's for the generic futures contract, mind you. We would likely see additional upside follow through just based on the nature of how these resistance levels act. So switching to a fundamental look at things, I'm going to ask Ben, should investors now pile into energy stocks given the run-up in crude? Um, I, don't, I don't think you should be piling in. Um, what I do think is that uh, this is a sector that people had uh, not been thinking about for a long time. And in fact, it was a very easy way to lose all your money um, being long oil stocks for a while there. Um, but, but not uh, last year. Not last year. And what we've seen um, since really the, that that low in uh, in 2020 when oil went negative and the oil stocks uh, really got hammered, um, you know, oil has basically hasn't really the oil stocks, at least the XLE hasn't done much uh, really since the middle of, of last year. It's uh, been kind of range bound as oil has gone up and down. And I think it's digesting a lot of these moves. But um, I have to think that with oil still so much in demand and production showing really no signs of ever coming back the way that it was before, that it's worth owning um, owning oil stocks. Um, and I don't think you would necessarily want to be chasing these big kind of moves uh, that uh, like like we've had today, but I do think that you know it's worth owning some of these. Um, you know, if you you want the safer kind of stuff, you look at uh, something like an Exxon, which uh, has been pretty low volatility through all this. Um, but there's a lot of things that look interesting. Uh, one analyst put out a, a bull call on uh, Halliburton um, this morning. Actually, they see uh, room for oil services stocks to do well, um, particularly if you know you do start to see a little more drilling coming in as prices. Go go up. Um, so I, I see it as one where it's like you don't necessarily want to want to chase, but I think you have to own um, just a, a decent amount of oil stocks in your portfolio at this point. All right. Thank you both. So we started with energy, but now I want to backtrack and look at the broader market. Katie, can you describe the setup you see for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite? 
both of those major indices have been essentially range bound for a few months now. And I think that's probably in part why frustrations are running high, because in a trading range, while there's short term swings in both directions, you can't assert a directional bias and stay with it and feel good about it. So we had a, a good decline in December, a good rally in January, a good decline in February, sort of both in March. Um, so it's, it's been a, quite a frustrating environment, I think, for a lot of us. Um, you know, it almost forces you to be more short term in your focus. Uh, short term, of course, we have seen a very good rally off of the mid-March low. And that rally as of late last week where we saw what felt like a bit of a melt up, uh, you know, we did see some of the technology stocks get through resistance levels on their charts. So that's what we're watching right now in the near term is both the NASDAQ 100 index and some stocks from a bottom up perspective as having what we call unconfirmed breakouts. So they got through the resistance levels that we were watching, and we just want to see them stay there this week to suggest that these are real breakouts as opposed to fakeouts. And fakeouts are pretty common uh, when you do have that kind of melt-up activity like we saw over the uh, three days at the end of last week. So we want to be um, somewhat conservative in the way we're approaching these breakouts, noting also that uh, with this tape, what we've seen is is really a very poor market breadth or participation. Uh, that's been somewhat widely publicized. It, it's certainly improved off of the March low, but not to the degree with which we have uh, bullish reversals in breadth terms or anything to really write home about. So we feel that We'd like to see this this move really spread out, um, get away from just the large cap technology stocks that have exhibited uh, such strong upside leadership year to date. And that could be the key to its sustainability. There are still a lot of signs of upside exhaustion that we, again, want to use as the rationale behind being conservative in our approach to markets, making sure any breakouts are confirmed, and really not, not feeling the need to chase anything. If something's run up, we do feel fairly confident that volatility will expand enough that, that we should see pullbacks for better entry points. So we're not jumping on board quite yet, uh, but last week we did see some breakouts develop. We haven't had a melt-up in a while. It was kind of fun. <laughs> well, it depends on your position, right? <laughs> I suppose. I suppose that's definitely true. Can you just describe what breadth is for those who don't know? It's a term we use a lot, but it is, it is market jargon. Yeah, I, I, breath is um, what we consider to be a market internal measure. And among the market internals, we have breath, sentiment, leadership, and volume. And they are, they're often talked about because they tell a story behind the markets. We give much more weight to price action over any of what the market internals are saying to us because that price action just kind of rules, um, you know, it, it directs our indicators and is the primary source for our takeaways. But there are times that we are really paying attention to the market internals, and it tends to be when they're at extremes. So when we see extremes registered by, let's say, an oscillating measure of breath, that, that's when we perk up and look for some kind of inflection point. Uh, to your question on, on what breath is, it is participation. So it's typically looking at how many stocks are advancing or declining on up and down days. So that's the, the primary metric usually in behind breath measures. But there's also ones like a percentage of stocks above their 50-day moving averages or 200-day moving averages. There's a lot of different ways to evaluate it, but they're generally trying to get at the same thing. How many stocks are participating in this rally? And is that something that makes it more suspect or not? 
makes it makes sense when you begin to think about it, but mm -hmm. good concept to know more about. So let's look at volatility for a moment. You mentioned to me that you find the VIX interesting these days. That's the CBOE volatility index. It was at 1937 this morning, which suggested kind of a dull market to me. What's so interesting about it to you? Well, it is somewhat depressed is what I would call it. Um, the lows of this cycle, which we consider to be a high volatility like regime or cycle, are at 1845. So that's support on the VIX chart or the volatility index chart. And it's a contrarian indication of market sentiment. So when it's depressed in the same way that it is now, it suggests that investors are maybe too greedy. They're overly bullish, perhaps. And then vice versa, it will spike. The VIX will spike associated with downdrafts in the S&P 500, to which it's inversely correlated. So we use it uh, for affirmation of moves and for a reflection that's transactional in nature because it's looking at put and call premiums, it, it's giving us a read on how investors feel about the market. And that can be really telling and informational. So with, with this low reading around, it's just above 19 right now, and support being so close by at that 1845 level in our work, it's, it's a proving ground. And that's why it's interesting to me. I would expect it to hold support because it has done that so many times during this cycle. If it does not hold support, then that would suggest we're getting into a new type of cycle, which would be more bullish for the market. So really kind of a pivotal level here for the VIX. And you also look at the, I guess, the NASDAQ VIX, which is um, the CBOE NASDAQ 100 Volatility Index. It's the VXN. So is that sending the same message to you? It is. And this is actually something that's not always on our radar. It's a little bit of a messy chart, to be honest. Um, but we, our attention has been drawn to it just because of that outperformance from the mega cap complex, which influences the NASDAQ 100 much more than the S&P 500. So that all eyes have really been on the NASDAQ 100 index, which has, I think, something close to a 40% weighting in the top five stocks. So they're really driving the action. And so that drew our attention to this so-called VXM, which should trade hand in hand typically with the VIX or volatility index for the S&P 500. And both have the, the same signs of short-term downside exhaustion for those DeMarc indicators. So they're sharing these countering signals that suggest that their support levels will remain intact. And what that would mean or translate into would be an oversold bounce in the VXN and the VIX and a pullback in the NASDAQ 100 and S&P 500. Pullbacks reflecting an increase in volatility, um, specifically downside volatility. And that's where you see kind of the emotions shift behind the market. So it's when that fears, fears will become a little bit more elevated naturally when uh, the equity market is pulling back. So they, they all tend to kind of go hand in hand. So we have a question from Thomas, and I'm going to pose it to you now. Usually we wait till the end of the call for questions, but it's germane to the discussion. Thomas notes, I've been using the VIX as one of my guides to where the market is going. Like you, Katie, I've been waiting for it to spike so we can get one last big capitulation and put this bear market behind us. Wouldn't we all like that? My gut tells me that the longer we wait, the less chance of that actually happening. He wants to know your thoughts about that. You know, I've, I've not done much of a study on the duration of these 
these types of periods, but I know they have happened in the past where they feel almost never ending in terms of the VIX bouncing along a support level. In fact, we even had that in 2021. Uh, it was a lower volatility regime naturally at that time, uh, but we all know how that culminated in Q1 of 2022, where we, we did ultimately get a VIX spike up into this sort of 37 range. Um, so I don't know that I can give real feedback on the duration typically of these periods where, where it is depressed. We did see it naturally in March uh, spike up a little bit to the 31 area alongside the pullback that we saw in the S&P 500, but it wasn't to the upper boundary of the trading range. And that would, I agree, increase the possibility that this is, is a shifting cycle. But it, when you look at the past bear market cycles for the major indices, going back to the periods like 2008 and uh, 2000, 2002, those periods, and even the, the lesser bear market cycles, if you can call them that, you know, 2015, 16 for one, you, you don't tend to see them get out of uh, the bear market cycle without a VIX reading of at least about 48 to 52. So we wouldn't necessarily need to see something in the 80, 90 uh, range, at least here's hoping, right? Um, right. That was the, the 2020 um, corrective phase from COVID and also the 2008 um, bear market culminated with that level of a reading. But the, the previous ones were a little bit more modest than that. So um, I think, you know, we're being somewhat hopeful to suggest that, that we've seen the last of it in terms of downside volatility. So I'm still in that camp. But, um, you know, if we do see that 1845 level taken out decisively, well, then uh, the, the spike could be at a lower level. Yeah, can I, if I can add something, um, you know, you mentioned the uh, 2015. I still remember a, a column that I had written because that uh, the first part, I think it was almost the first eight months of that year, nothing happened. It was uh, the market was stuck in this very tight range. I don't think the VIX was was budging it. Um, and it wasn't until uh, China devalued the, uh, the yuan that uh, the market finally uh, capitulated and uh, things started going down. So I think it can these kind of things can remain you know, stuck for uh, for for quite a while. Um, before something happens that uh, moves them one way or the other. And the, the things that we worry about most are, are the unknowns. Um, you know, it's not the known things like the recent bank failures that's already been worked into the VIX and positioning to some degree at least. So it's, it's the unanticipated headlines that we worry most about. Makes sense for sure. Let's move on to earnings. It is the telltale end of fourth quarter earnings season. We've got a couple of companies reporting this week, and we are gearing up for first quarter earnings, which will come in the next few weeks. So, Ben, take us through some of this week's expected highlights. Let's yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't know if you call these the, the stragglers or if these are the, the ones that are showing up uh, well ahead of time. They're the ones that are early to the party. Good point, uh, too. <laughs> uh, we'll get to the real start. Uh, I think it's mid-April when the banks start reporting. Um, this week, you know, it's it's pretty quiet. We get Conagra. Um, and like many staple stocks, you know, Conagra's had a tough uh, start to the year. Uh, it dropped about it's dropped about 3.2%. It was actually down more than that, but has uh, bounced back a bit um, with the bank uh, stress showing up. Um, this this year has really been characterized about uh, with by investors not needing the kind of defensives that worked so well last year. They've they've dumped uh, Conagra and other staples, and that that's good news in the sense that there's uh, you know that the stock isn't priced for for a lot. But the bad news is that the news probably isn't going to be 
great for Conagra either. Um, you know, UBS uh, expects the earnings to come in someplace around uh, the consensus of about 64 cents, but they also think that organic sales are going to miss. Um, but they, and then they note, and there's a lot of on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of going on that uh, short interest has doubled since the start of the year. So uh, that there might be um, some temptation to, to cover ahead of the earnings. Um, so UBS says that uh, Conagra is expected to um, reiterate its uh, 2023 guidance um, and maybe give a range for 24. But I think at this time, it really needs something good to get the stock out of this kind of uh, downtrend or at least out of a trading range when right now people, investors just don't seem to be terribly excited by safety. We have another safety stock also reporting Constellation Brands. That's another staple. Yeah, they're another staple. Instead of food, though, they're beer. Uh, right. They have they have other things uh, that they that they sell, but it's it's really a, a beer stock, um, and it, it's another one that started off uh, the, the year kind of in a, in a tough spot. Uh, it's, it's down about two point three percent this more. Um, and again, there's there are these near term worries here um, in the beer industry. They use something called depletions, which is really just a fancy way of saying the uh, the sales of uh, beer to, to um, the consumer. And um, th there's worries that uh, the, uh, the the rate is actually uh, decelerating um, and that if that uh, comes in too weak, it could be a problem for the stock, even though it has had a, a difficult start to the year compared to the market. Um, it's expecting a buck 84 and that would be down from two dollars and thirty seven cents. Um, but it's another one that seems like it, you might need to, to wait a little while for this thing to start getting going again. All right, not not such exciting beer there. No. So the last the last one to talk about for this week is Levi Strauss, and I I have to tell you as a shopper, I I don't understand the jeans market anymore. So maybe you can explain it by looking at Levi's earnings. I don't know if if skinny jeans are in or fat jeans are in or what, but it's a very competitive market. It's a very competitive market. Uh, it could be a very expensive market. Uh, if you want to spend three or four hundred dollars on a pair of jeans, you can. If you want to spend, you know. $10 at uh, Old Navy, you can. Um, that's actually what my wife prefers. Um, what what gets me with Levi's is that, you know, that's that's a brand that I used to wear a lot when I was younger. 501s were, you know, my jean when I was a, a teenager, or early college years. And uh, now I only have one pair of Levi's left in my closet. It's a pair of 529s. Um, and, um, but but the, the stock has been actually doing pretty well. It's uh, up about 18% uh, uh, this year. Um, the fundamental seem to be uh, firming and uh, the results uh, look like they um, they should be uh, pretty decent um, there's the, the, again the, the issue with the stock is that a lot of um, what is going to drive it are things that are going to come in the second half of the year. Right now, they are um, expected to grow their sales. Um, they're going to expect to come in around $1.62 billion. That would be up a little bit from $1.59 billion. But earnings are actually expected to drop, which suggests that you know margins are being pressured either by um, inflation or because they just had too, much, uh, too many genes that nobody wanted to buy. And watching for how that begins to play out is really the thing that will determine whether this bounce that has happened at the beginning of the year continues or whether it's just a head fake. Katie, we won't ask you what kind of jeans you buy. Oh, good. <laughs> I, I'm confused too, Lauren. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, ben, I did want to just ask you for a sort of a brief preview of coming attractions. 
As I mentioned, first quarter earnings are going to be flowing in seriously around the middle of the month. What kind of quarter was it? you know, this is a quarter where we have seen um, Wall Street analysts do what they uh, have been doing for the last few quarters. They're taking their estimates down quite a bit. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, I think Nick Colas over at DataTrek was uh, noting that it's actually happening more than usual and that only three sectors, um, that'd be consumer discretionary, industrials, and energies, are expected to show earnings growth that beats inflation. Um, but those groups have also had their earnings uh, uh, the revised lower more than just about anybody else. So it is a really messy setup uh, for earnings season. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that uh, the market is going to be struggling with is that uh, stocks, because of this uh, bounce in the market to start the year, are, are and because of this uh, pullback in earnings expectations for the year, stocks are a lot more expensive than they, they were just a little while ago. We're back over 18 times, um, and that's not cheap, especially for a market where um, they it had you know at one point been able to get zero percent uh, on um, borrow money at almost zero percent, and now it's up uh, it rates are up closer to five, um, and all these things are going to put pressure on uh, ROEs and, and and whatnot, and make uh, companies really have to uh, struggle for efficiencies. And so, I think it's it's going to be interesting to watch, uh, especially the stocks that have seen their um, PE inflate um, and their stocks go up, um, whether those are going to, uh, whether the market will accept from them a number that might not be, uh, you know, uh, knock it out of the park or earnings guidance that really does point to earnings growth. Um, And I think that'll go a long way towards determining, you know, whether this rally that we've had uh, is going to continue or not. You know, it's interesting. The market is much higher than many people expected, and we have yet to have the recession that everyone has predicted. It's very Very true. Very strange time. (laughs) So let's go to some listener questions. We've got a lot of them rolling in. And the first one I'm going to put to Katie, it's a question from Lee. He wants to know, what is your background that led you to become a market technician? Give us a little bit of your background in terms of your college major, your work experience. Oh, right. Yeah, no, it was uh, almost like I was destined to be a technical analyst. And, and yet <laughs> I remember telling my friends in college what I was going to be, and they, they were very confused. They had no idea what that meant. Um, but but in college, I actually was on the finance track. So I had exposure to it on a very low level because of that. But my university at the graduate level actually offered a course in technical analysis. So I was able to audit that course and have academic exposure. And even my CMT level one, which is our our designation, the Chartered Market Technician exam, completed by the time I graduated college. Uh, But the way I was enlightened to it and really inspired uh, by it was by uh, my internship. So I had an internship with an investment advisor, and one of the advisors had on his desk some X's and O's. And I said, what on earth is that? No, it was point and figure charts. And uh, the provider was Dorsey Wright. So I picked up an internship there um, and just carried it through a couple of years in college. So it was between the internship, the coursework, the finance track, and just the way I think about the markets, I was always inclined to uh, be a little bit more mathematical in my thinking. And uh, it resonated with me in that regard and, and taking out the emotional biases. I love that story. I can imagine that your friends were very perplexed. 
<laughs> I mean, who goes to college and wants to become a technical stock analyst? Yeah, a little atraditional. Right. So Lee has another question, and I will put this to Ben. He says, Ben, he would characterize you as relatively bearish during the mini bull market, and he too has been surprised by the market's upward movement given the headwinds. Do you think the uptrend is almost out of gas? Um, it's, that's it's a really good question. Um, I, I I wish I could say uh, I, you know I had a good answer for this. Um, one of the things that uh, you know I was reading yesterday, and I think this is true a lot of the time, is that you have to when you're looking at the market, you have to think about uh, what what you think the destination is, but also how the market's going to get there. And so as I looked at the market this year, I've really been following kind of the playbook laid out by uh, Barry Bannister at Stiefel, um, who uh, you know, he, he sees the market going uh, 4,300, maybe even as high as 4,400 later this year um, before uh, investors kind of realize that there really is an, 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 um, a recession coming. And, you know, I, I think what we're seeing right now is kind of his his thesis playing out that you are seeing um, a, a lot of uh, the markets being driven, I think, a lot by positioning and, and by sentiment that uh, last year was so bad. Um, and uh, I think there were, were tech stocks that people decide, oh, you just couldn't own. And then all of a sudden they start to do well. And um, it's sort of uh, the market, uh, it, they take on a life of their own. And you can see that kind of in a, the rotation in the market that uh, there are good, uh, there, there are stocks that were very strong last year. They're having terrible starts to this year as uh, people rotate back into, uh, into the, especially the big tech stocks. Um, so in the short term, I, I do see, like, think the market can keep going up. And I'm surprised by it. Um, I'm worried about big tech. I just do think the market moves in very long cycles where what has worked stops working at some point. And I think that tech is still in that kind of process right now. Um, and and I, and I think that the, the market will be heading lower at some point. But for now, it does seem like the momentum is to the upside. Um, and we'll have to see how that uh, plays out in the near term. I think you answered the question, but HPS, would you fade the tech rally at this point or buy more tech? Um, I mean, I, I think you have to, um, I, I, I would probably be fading it. I, I look at uh, the price action on uh, Friday um, and, it was, uh, and it looked almost like people were just wanting to uh, make sure that they had enough tech in their, um, in their portfolios uh, to show clients um, at the end of the quarter. Um, just had that kind of feel to it, um, and I, and I think it's a, it's probably a good time for for tech to take a breather here. But as as Katie was pointing out, a lot of this comes down to can it hold on to uh, these gains? It's going to pull back. It's it's going to um, there's going to be trading in it. How far is it going to pull back? Can it start creating those you know hold these support levels that it may have or may not have and head higher? But I I do think without earnings growth again that the uh, the tech sector is going to be a tough place to be. Katie, do you look at individual tech stocks from a technical perspective? I do. I, I could probably draw the, all of the mega cap tech stocks. I know them so well. Um, and, and I'm in a way, you know, glad that Ben took that question, not me. But but I will add that as much as the uptrends uh, look healthy and, um, you know, we have seen some resistance levels cleared, that when you look at the relatives, so if you're looking at something like Microsoft versus the 
S&P 500, the ratios are very extended, meaning that the phase of outperformance should at least alleviate here. So we have some counter trend signals in large cap tech versus uh, the broader market. And what that would suggest is that we see pullback in relative terms, meaning short term underperformance. And that would also require if the tape is going to forge higher here, that means we really need to see breath sustain itself like better breath, meaning other sectors are going to have to come in and pull up the slack. Do you take a look at Apple at all? You probably I brought in your sleep. I, I, I could. Uh, so Apple got through some resistance that I was watching around 156. And I see that as an incremental positive for that stock. It too is overextended versus the S&P 500, meaning that relative performance that we've seen is probably going to peter off here. Uh, but the next resistance for Apple is something close to the mid 170s. And so for folks that are lucky enough to hold the stock, they should probably just hold tight and, and see if they can get a little bit more out of this move with a resistance level having been cleared. All right. We had a question from Hal, and I'm going to put this to you, Katie, as well. What is your view of the inflation recession situation and what role does this sort of macro analysis play in your tech analysis, if any, in, in your technical analysis, if any? Well, to your point, Lauren, about you look at fundamentals and it's a nice complement um, to technicals, I'd say the same thing about macro inputs. I think it's almost like the three-legged stool. If you have a fundamental backing and macro backing and a technical backing, that's the most powerful takeaway that you can have. The macro and the fundamental side obviously are not my expertise, uh, but but what we do at times do is look at market history, um, you know, sort of macro events and refer back to the charts over those periods. And one, one important takeaway that we can make from a long-term perspective about recessions is that the market doesn't usually bottom before a recession. So if you, as an investor, think that a recession is coming uh, for whatever reason, uh, then you should be managing risk. And, and that's just based on market history. The market always bottoms during the recession and even at times after the recession. So uh, it would be a cautionary input from a market's perspective. So speaking of the macro, I wanted to circle back to Ben to talk about the big macro news this week, which will be the February payrolls report, excuse me, the March payrolls report. It is coming out on Friday. The stock market is closed on Friday. The bond market is open, I believe, half a day. So we'll have to delay the market's reaction. But Ben, what is the consensus estimate for non-farm payrolls and for the unemployment rate? And what will it all mean? Yeah, and we will get the uh, bond market's reaction, which you know, we should be able to to guess a little bit about what the uh, the stock market uh, will think about it. But it's going to be a very odd day for this. Um, we're supposed to see uh, uh, the payrolls number come in around two hundred forty thousand. That'd be down from uh, three hundred eleven thousand, while the uh, unemployment rate is supposed to hold steady at uh, three point six percent. I'm not sure that that's that even if we get if we get those numbers that that's uh, exactly what the the Fed uh, would would want to see, um, but it also but it might be enough uh, to keep the market happy um, if that makes any sense. Um, the the job market remains very strong, and even this payrolls number, it's probably going to be weaker than it might have actually been just because of things like weather and and whatnot. Um, so it's likely to be a strong report. Um, but if the market is worried 
uh, if the market is convinced that the Fed is really going to slow down its its rate hikes, um, and the jobs report comes in uh, even around the consensus level, um, it would suggest that you know we're going to continue to have a, a strong economy and and no uh, recession, and keep pushing things higher. Um, there are some there is some weakness out there. We got the uh, manufacturing uh, ISM today. Um, and the employment index uh, fell to 46.9 thousand. Um, Jeffries point, uh, pointed that out. They think that uh, we'll see a 10,000 uh, job drop in manufacturing payrolls. We also have reports out there that maybe McDonald's is laying some uh, managerial workers off and, and things like that. But so far, that none of this is going to is really showing up in in the payrolls numbers. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how the, at least the bond market responds when uh, that number comes out on Friday. But uh, I, I think that. As long as it's around that consensus, the market should be fine. We have two more payrolls reports before the Fed's next meeting. So important one to watch. And just two more questions from listeners. We'll go through them quickly. One from Steve is on the semiconductor sector. During COVID, there was an acute shortage of chip. Then companies overproduced. Now there's a glut. But he notes that the Van Ack Semiconductor Index is up 30% year to date. What explains that, given the glut, and what's the outlook? Ben, you want to take that, or Katie? Sure. I mean, I, I, well, let me, if you don't mind me starting, I'm going to try to do a little bit of a maybe a fundamental. I'm not sure it's quite fundamental, but uh, give a reason. And and I think a lot of it has to just do with uh, ChatGPT. Um, the uh, I remember at our roundtable talking to uh, Henry Ellenbogen um, just about uh, ChatGBT as it first uh, launched and the excitement there and the the excitement uh, really for chip investors because uh, especially for um, investors in stock like Nvidia which have been having such a hard time um, is that uh, AI takes a lot of um, computing power and uh, a stock like uh, NVIDIA um, would benefit from that. And I, I think that a lot of what's happening in the chip sector is maybe some inventory clearing and whatnot, but I think there's just a lot of hope that uh, uh, AI is going to provide the, the next, uh, uh, will provide the, the, uh, the, the fundamental reason for the next light hire. How about the chart, Katie? What does it say to you? Yeah, I mean, certainly semiconductor stocks have been a source of upside leadership year to date, and, and it's really been pronounced. In fact, it feels like the SMH ETF that was referred to has not really looked back. It's, it's above its rising 50-day moving average. It got through some resistance on its chart uh, with a big heavyweight in NVIDIA having done the same. Here, just like some of the mega cap stocks, we have what we consider to be an overbought reading in relative terms, meaning the relative performance that has been so strong should fall off here, at least in the near term. But when the market feels like it's ready to really advance, and, and again, we're not convinced of that yet, uh, when it feels like it's a, a fully bottomed, meaning that the bear market cycle has culminated, that's when you would want to go right back to these semiconductor stocks because they did exhibit leadership at, you know, at periods when the market was strong, and they often do. The technology sector, and I'd say secondarily consumer discretionary, do tend to be the best performing sectors in the early stages of uh, bull market cycle. So um, now that we have sort of the rationale, a pullback in relative terms might provide an opportunity. Okay. Last question from Gabriel concerns fertilizer stocks. They had a good run with the Ukraine war, then the run faded. Do you see a possibility of another bullish run in fertilizer? I, I don't know what index you would look at there, Katie, but 
Yeah, I, I think maybe is, is it the Mosaic company? MOS is the ticker mm-hmm. is one of the agricultural chemicals is what they would categorize them as. You know, we've seen a downtrend unfold in that space and Mosaic's a good example of that. Lower highs and lower lows and uh, with a fairly recent breakdown too. And, and it was a tape in which we're not seeing a lot of breakdown. So I think we want to respect the price action. And, you know, if, if there is a position, maybe let it be more short term in nature just to leverage a relief rally or an oversold bounce. And, even just very simply like looking at the slope of the 200-day moving average, you'll see that they have deteriorated more from a longer-term perspective. So I think, you know, it's a challenged space perhaps, um, but just like anything else, these short-term swings can be quite volatile. We, of course, saw that um, very recently, both to the upside and the downside. So for those that are nimble and trading-oriented, they could try to take advantage of that. I wish we could talk all day about this. I know I could. (laughs) But I'm afraid we've come to the end of the call. Thank you so much, Katie, for joining us today. This was so interesting. Of course, Lauren. Thank you always to Ben as well. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And thanks for your great questions. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, Eric Savitz, will speak with Matt Peral, Director of the Center on Technology Policy at UNC Chapel Hill on the outlook for technology stocks. So more tech talk there. And Katie, one of these days we'll have to do another Q&A with you for Barron's.com and the magazine, and we'll ask you about even more stocks and sectors. That'd be great. But thanks for your input today. Take care, everyone. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.